Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. An apology by the Presbyterian Church is part of their larger effort to make amends for what they acknowledge was a decision rooted in racism that closed a church in Alaska 60 years ago. The efforts are largely welcomed by Alaska Natives. But hard feelings persist elsewhere in at least two other instances of business owners who apologized after specifically targeting Native Americans. Today we'll look at how and when to react after problematic behavior against Native people and culture. That's after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A large cuspuck which draws attention to violence against Native women has been traveling the country. Yupik artist Amber Webb created the traditional garment. It features portraits of missing and murdered Indigenous women. I didn't realize until I did the project how many women I knew who had either been murdered or gone missing. And I didn't realize how big of an impact that had on shaping my identity, like how I walk around in the world, where I'll go and where I won't go, and how I teach my daughters to be safe. Webb says it's a personal issue for her having a family friend go missing. Several years ago, she felt an overwhelming sense to do something and created a nearly 13-foot-tall cuspuck, featuring hand-drawn faces on the garment with permanent marker. I wasn't going to be able to find portraits of all of the Native women from Alaska who've been murdered because so many don't even have never been tracked. I decided to look to the work that was being done in Canada and all over North America, and I wanted to honor all of the activism that had been happening. And this was people's grandmas, people's aunties, people who died before anything happened. Those are the people that allowed all of us who are doing activism now to have a platform to do what we're doing. Webb says she wants to make sure stereotypes are dispelled about missing and murdered Native women. The violence happens anywhere Native women are, and it's a part of colonization tied into the experience of boarding school trauma and, in, and tied into the experience of like that people had during forced removal. The violence we're experiencing today is the same violence. It's the same violence that our grandmas and our great-grandmas experienced. When we talk about violence, it's really important to name it. It's important to name where the violence comes from and who's doing it. You could say Native women are killed at alarming rates, or you could say people are killing Native women, and who are those people? And we know that 90% um, of them are non-Native people. And even the ones that are Native are coming from places who have experienced high, high rates of trauma. Webb says the cuspuck is to honor the women and keep their memories alive. When people look at each one of those faces, I want them to see the humanity and the life that was there. Um, because it's not about how they died, it's about how they lived. And it's about how we live in their honor and um, how we protect each other. Webb's Memorial Cuspuck is currently part of the traveling exhibit, Protection, Adaptation and Resistance, showcasing the work of more than 45 Alaska Native artists. The story is a partnership with FNX Television with support by the Public Welfare Foundation. 
The 2024 National Western Stock Show begins this week. Festivities include a parade on Thursday. And as KUNC's Ray Solomon reports, an indigenous group is bringing native culture to the event. Marching bands, horses, and longhorn cattle will take over downtown Denver to kick off the annual celebration of Western ranching culture. This year, for the first time, the parade will feature the Rocky Mountain Indigenous Dancers. Mary Martinez Yellow Horse directs the dance troupe. Representation matters that we're able to bring our culture into new spaces, and even if it's uncomfortable, it's needed. We're out there to show that we're still here, we're still thriving. The parade opens more than two weeks of rodeos and events that President and CEO Paul Andrews calls the Super Bowl of stock shows. The entire country is converging on Denver to compete. Coast to coast, they are here. You will not see a competition with more competitive animals in this country. This year's highlights include live music on the weekends and a new exhibit featuring Colorado's burgeoning wine industry. The stock show runs January 6th through the 21st. That was Ray Solomon and I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the Intertribal Agriculture Council. Native producers have historically faced discrimination by USDA programs. You may be eligible for the USDA Discrimination Financial Assistance Program. Application deadline is January 13th at IndianAg.org. A historical trauma masterclass taught by Dr. Ruby Gibson and staff provides tuition-free online training to tribal members who are therapists, counselors, social workers, and traditional healers. Enrollment deadline is March 1st at freedomlodge.org, who support this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. A civil rights lawsuit brought by the Department of Justice forced a hotel owner in Rapid City, South Dakota, to issue a written apology and take other steps after publicly banning Native Americans as hotel guests. But another lawsuit claims the hotel is still turning away Native customers. A business owner in Arizona faced few consequences after a public tirade against Native Americans. The Presbyterian Church USA started a reconciliation process in 2022 with the Tlingit community in Juneau, Alaska for the 1962 closing of the tribe's church, which was spurred by racism. Such disparaging actions and public comments aimed at Native Americans are a step backward in the work toward equality and civil discourse. The response to those actions can make a difference going forward. What is required by individuals and institutions to make amends with Native people? Let us know. Share your thoughts. Join the conversation today by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Our first guest on the show today is joining us from Rapid City, South Dakota, Nick Tilson. He's the executive director of the Indian Collective. He's the president and CEO. He's Oglala Lakota. Nick, hello. Welcome to the show today. Hey, Sean. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Well, 
I, I think we all watched uh, the aftermath of the events at the Gateway, the Grand Gateway Hotel there in Rapid City. Uh, it was certainly troubling. And then, of course, when the Justice Department stepped in, I think a lot of us thought, hey, you know, things are going to kind of get turned around. But apparently there's still problems there. What's the current legal status there with the hotel? Yeah, so a couple of things. I think uh, just to just to just to backtrack a little bit to, to remind uh, listeners out there, um, you know, when this happened, Indian Collective, Indian Collective actually filed a federal civil rights lawsuit against the Grand Gateway with other plaintiffs, um, uh, because members of our community and members of our staff were actually denied access uh, uh, to the Grand to the Grand Gateway. Um, because it was one thing for them to actually threaten that they weren't going to serve Native people. And then when Native people actually went there, they actually refused service. Uh, And Nick, I'm sorry, Nick, and just to make it clear, so what you folks did in the collective stepped in and said, hey, we're going to see what's really going on there. So you, a bunch of your folks went over there and and tried to get rooms, right, just to see what's going on at this place. Are they really discriminating against Natives? Is that, was that the strategy more or less? Yeah, and actually we, 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 we were like, we couldn't. We actually, we couldn't really believe it at first because everybody knows Rapid City is a regional town, right? So, you know, an organization like ours, we do business with almost every single, you know, every single hotel in Rapid City, and so do so does the whole Native community, you know. And so it was like we wanted to step in to be like, this can't be true that they're actually going to do this, you know. And sure enough, you know, we we went up there and our people went up there and they were denied they were denied access, and in that moment they violated our civil rights and, you know, the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Um, And so when we filed that lawsuit, we were the first to act. We were the first to bring light to this issue. We were the first to mobilize the the people on this issue. The Department of Justice came later because of, and so their, the apology, the, the, the lawsuit against the Grand Gateway that Indian Collective and other plaintiffs have, that is still that is still moving forward. That is not solved, and there's a good chance that that's going to go to trial. In um, you know, it's going to go to trial in the spring of 2024. But the civil rights lawsuit that the Department of Justice came in, they did a consent um, decree uh, with um, with the owners of the Grand Gateway. That's what forced that half apology that they tried to do. But okay, the crazy the thing is, the letter. The one more thing I will say that's important for the public to know about is, while they were negotiating a consent decree, while they were negotiating this consent decree, while Indian Collective's um, civil rights lawsuit was was moving forward, the Grand Gateway, in August of 2023, once again, actively denied access to a Native American family from Wisconsin. That family right. didn't know nothing about the, the protest or anything. So right. on, so in, the, in this whole thing, another lawsuit on behalf of that family directly has been filed against the Grand Gateway. And they did okay. that, you know, with all this pressure. Right, right. So there's, I mean, there's three separate uh, legal actions, roughly three separate legal actions that are occurring. So 
I mean, Nick, what does it say? And what are people up there in Rapid City talking about? Because, I mean, obviously, you know, that was a huge issue way back in 2022 when you folks stepped in and there was the protest. And then, of course, there was the hotel owner that, is, you know, was spraying people. And here it is just last summer. And they're still pulling, even with the Justice Department stepping in, they're still behaving the same way. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that I think that that these folks are true blue racists, you know. Um, I think that, uh, you know, some, some people, you know, get a mirror held up to their behavior and get slapped on the wrist and it eventually ends up changing, you know, their, their worldview. These folks have no intention of changing their worldview. In, even in their statement, they try to act as if they are a friend of the Native American community in which they're not, you know, they, they do not care about the Native, Native American community at all. And so they've only been trying to, you know, sort of cover, cover themselves. I think the Native community up here is like, you know, we see that behavior of the Uris and the Grand Gateway as a symptom of a larger problem of racism here. You know, this mm-hmm. is, you know, a culture exists up here that makes it okay for the Uris in the Grand, in the Grand Gateway to behave the way that they did is because they felt so emboldened because of the culture of systemic racism here in this community. And so I think up here, the community uh, does not accept their apology whatsoever at all. They have continued to violate Native Americans, people's civil rights during the process. You know, the apology does, does not even include Indian Collective, doesn't even include uh, George Badlion, Sonny Red Bear, who are also okay. plaintiffs. And, you know, that's one of the core things of an apology is, one, if you're going to apologize, say it to the people that it's impacted. <laughs> right. And when we were in negotiations with the Department of Justice, I'll be honest, they, the Department of Justice didn't even have the correct list of our tribal leaders in this territory of who that apology should go out to. And it felt okay. really disrespectful. Nick, one thing I want to ask you too. So, uh, this elderly woman that uh, one of the owners of the hotel, uh, she was the one that put these really inflammatory posts on social media. She was the one that sprayed some of the protesters, and and some of the family members were like, "Look, she's seventy six years old. She's elderly. She doesn't really understand what she's doing." And the people are kind of just overreacting. What's your response? when you heard people just trying to defend or or excuse her actions as just maybe an, an older person, a little bit senile or something? Well, she wasn't the lone one that actually denied access to Native American people. It was her son and younger staff at the Grand Gateway. So when our people went there to rent the rooms, we were denied access by young members of the Yuri family, her sons and people who worked there. And so this whole thing of just saying, oh, it's her, she's the problem, it is so inaccurate from the actual truth of when people's actual civil rights were violated. They made this, their their public comments about this, made this be about those public comments, when the reality of what this is really about is that in the 21st century, they directly refused service to Native American people, mm-hmm. therefore violating our civil rights. That is the issue. Not the issue that she went online 
you know, saying inflammatory racist comments. The real issue at hand is that they actually denied access based on somebody's race, in this case, Native American. And that can't be overlooked. And that was done by members of the Yuri family. And all of the owners of that corporation need to be held accountable, not just Connie Yuri. So, Nick, going forward, what needs to happen here? And what worries me about this issue is um, this is just one example, just one hotel. In, in Rapid City and other places in South Dakota have this long history of racist behavior towards its native residents, its native citizens. And um, how confident are you that, that some of these issues are going to be addressed uh, not only here at the, the, the Grand Gateway, but just across the state of South Dakota with regard to businesses and other organizations? I mean, I think that I think that the work that we're doing to shine light on this and that people can't get away with this, that if people, you know, um, violate the rights of Native American people, indigenous people, um, that we will sue them, that we will hold them accountable, that it will cost their business money, that racism is expensive, it impacts your bottom line, and they should be embracing the Native American community. All of these things um, happen as a culture shift. But I hate to say it, but it's going to take more protesting. It's going to take probably more lawsuits, and we have to continue to put them on notice. We need the Department of Justice to come here uh, in a much bigger way because, like, in this community, we're talking about the businesses on this call, but since the death of George Floyd, there has been six murders at the hands of the Rapid City Police Department. <clears throat> and all of, those, all of those murders are of Native American people and not one full investigation or one charge has been brought against any member of the law enforcement community that's what we're talking about here right there's a culture that not only makes it okay for people to deny a service at hotels it also is the same exact racism that makes it okay to shoot native american people in this community and sometimes in the back Nick, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back talking more about issues and events in Rapid City, South Dakota. Inuit communities in eastern Canada are getting ready to greet the Naluyak this weekend. The tradition involves scary-looking figures that come out one night of the year to reward those who have been good and punish those who haven't. We'll learn more about the tradition in the next Native America Calling. Pursuing a degree in higher education is attainable, and with a scholarship from Native Forward Scholars Fund, it is more affordable. From aerospace to veterinary medicine, as the largest direct scholarship provider to Native students in the U.S., Native Forward has empowered over 22,000 students from over 500 tribes in all 50 states in pursuit of their undergraduate, graduate, and professional degrees. Info and applications at nativeforward.org, who support this show. You're listening to Native America Calling, and we're talking about righting wrongs today. What would you like to see from organizations or individuals who said words or took actions to hurt a Native individual or community? Is there an effective process for making amends? Join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. 
That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. The goal on this show here today is uh, ultimately to come to some sort of a consensus and, and get an understanding in terms of what needs to happen in terms of making amends and how do we move forward collectively as Native people when injustices or, or gross uh, actions are taken against us. And with that regard, I'm going to introduce our next guest here. His name is Brandon Ferguson. He's the founder and executive director of Ending the Silence in Rapid City. He's an enrolled member of the Oglala Sioux Tribe. He's in Rapid City, South Dakota right now. And Brandon, thank you for joining our show. And I understand you recently partnered with the Grand Gateway Hotel owners to host a, a conversation on racism. What inspired you to do that? And, and how did that conversation take place? What was the result? Hey, Sean, uh, good to be on with you, bro, man. Super excited to be here today. So um, I'm very excited uh, uh, to let everyone know that we've got a really powerful uh, organization called Ending the Silence. We're based out of Rapid City, and we're focusing on resolving native-on-native violence. And uh, following the incident that happened over at the Grand Gateway, as a tribal member, I felt um, that the lawsuit that was brought forward by Indian Collective and suing them has actually caused more damage in our community than it has done anything to try to fix the scenario. So um, I reached out to the owners of the Grand Gateway and I had asked them, I said, uh, you know, I think uh, we should try to figure out a way to make amends an appropriate way for our tribal members because I'm seeing a lot of young kids are picking up uh, these signs, these protest signs, and they're standing on the side of the road and they're screaming these injustices. And it's frustrating because a majority of our kids in Rapid City, our tribal members, have never been to a reservation before in their life. They were born off the res, a lot of multiple generations here in Rapid City that call Rapid City home. And so it was really disheartening to see tribes calling out for uh, for our tribal members to boycott Rapid City, boycott the, the businesses, because a lot of these businesses are owned by Native Americans, and these business owners employ our tribal members. Our kids go to school together, and, and uh, we're on the same football teams, basketball teams, pool leagues, bowling leagues, whatever it is. We are a community. And as Nick said earlier, we are a hub. Rapid City is a hub in Central. So I asked the Grand Gateway, I think we should do this a traditional way, and we should gather up our Lakota elders, and let's bring them into this space here at the Grand Gateway, and let's ask them what they think needs to happen. A lot of times, the younger generations forget that we, we're an oral tradition and that, that our elderly hold this wisdom. So they were, they were kind of... Uh, they were full support of it. They definitely wanted to do the meal and, and do the gathering, but they were just more like, do you think that people are going to show up? So we announced that we were going to do the event, and within 48 hours, we had 300 Rapid City Lakota elders call and sign up to come to this event. So leading right up to the dinner the night before, Indian Collective uh, was calling the elders, telling them not to attend the meeting, was threatening them. Uh, American Indian Movement stepped up, started calling the elders, saying, don't do this. This is the wrong thing to do. Every single elder showed up that wanted to wanted to come, and we had a few extras. You know, we'd get inside the space, and we had 
the family there, a couple of the, uh, uh, the sister, the older sister, wanted to provide a gift for the elders. So, uh, you know, she, she asked what would be appropriate, and I said, we, you know, you could give them tobacco, you could give them sage, you can give them flat cedar. So she gave them that when they walked in the door. And she said, my name is, you know, my name's Leslie. I am Connie Uri's daughter. And, you know, thank you for coming today. And we got them all into the space and we talked about this. And the one thing that just kept coming back to the forefront was the fact that Rapid City's most successful mayor was a guy named Art LaCroix. He was a Santee Sioux tribal member, full-blooded tribal member. And when he came back from World War II, the first thing that he did is he wanted he went down to Hotel Alex Johnson downtown Rapid and he was dressed in his in his in his uniform and he tried to rent a room. He was coming back to visit family and the first thing they told him is no Indians allowed. So instead of him holding anger or filing court cases or anything, he wanted to make that right. He 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 felt that there was a way that we could right this wrong. So he okay. ran for mayor of Rapid City, and he won the next six terms, and is the longest-serving mayor in Rapid City history. So it's really, it's really difficult to scream Rapid City's a racist community when, okay. in the 1970s, a full-blooded tribal member ran against three whites and took 70 percent of the vote. Nick, let me ask you a question. So, uh, you know, because this is the, this is what people are going to say: that hey, the only reason they're apologizing, the only reason the owners of this hotel are doing this stuff is because they've been reprimanded, because they've been investigated, because there are lawsuits. And it took uh, it took a while for them to even do these actions. Now, the question is, are they being sincere, or is this just an attempt at them to salvage what's left of their business? I think it's, it's really important that we look back. I'm 40 years old, and I can remember having my birthday parties as a kid inside of Grand Gateway. Grand Gateway has always been a, a very strong asset for like our Lakota Nation Invitational. They've always been a key sponsor for that. They've hosted numerous conferences throughout my entire life for all of the tribal schools in the in the area. And uh, I don't I don't think that they're they're doing this to try to comply. I I really feel like that they want to make amends. And they just don't know how, and they because there's no tribal members that are owners of the property, and so okay. we have to take take a look back at you know we we talk about elder elderly Connie right she's an elder we got to we have to look at how she was raised, and what was normalized as a kid, you know I look at look at uh, Bugs Bunny you know making fun of, of shooting Indians and and we take a look at the uh, the the pictures of. Uh, natives and cartoons and they had they okay had okay well, i'm sorry hold on a second brandon brandon hold on a second are you are you making excuses for her behavior because of the generation that she was raised in i'm not quite clear where you're going with this so rapid city has a homeless population here which is nearly 100 percent native american they're living along the creeks here i've got about 150 of them that are living on the streets despite there being snow on the ground and this this issue is has been in rapid city for 50 50 plus years and it's always been it's always been primarily native americans on the street unfortunately when you're a little kid and you're and you're in the back seat of a car and you're in a mcdonald's drive-through and you're getting your kid meal and you're looking out the window and you're seeing drunk native americans and how they're carrying themselves on the street corners in rapid city what we're doing is we're whether you're a native or non-native in rapid you have a story about a drunk native american and it's okay. not good 
And so right. you're raised, you're raised in that, and so your mind starts getting a learned bias towards people. And okay. I think okay. through education, we need to try to we need to try to overcome these learned biases. Okay, Brandon, appreciate you sharing your thoughts, and I'm going to go ahead and let Nick respond. Nick, uh, Brandon says uh, Indian Collective is is hurting more than helping in this situation. Please respond. Oh no, I think I think quite the difference. I think that Indian Collective has fired up the the community here to stand up uh, against injustice, to stand up against racism, and to and to build a better community on our terms because this is our land. This is, you know, it's called Rapid City because we call this place Mini Luzaha. So it's named after what we call this, this land and this place. And Indian Collective and the vast majority of the Native American community are not afraid to stand up to racism. We can, we, we know that we have to speak truth to power we know that we have to shed light on injustices that are happening here. We understand um, deeply that racism is a systemic issue. It is not just about one individual. And therefore, okay. we need systemic solutions. And I think that, you know, these last-ditch efforts by businesses after they have been engaged in federal lawsuits are not genuine at all. And while this was all happening, Native American people, people's rights were continued to be violated by the Grand Gateway. That is a fact. And those okay. lawsuits are continuing forward. All right, thanks. Brandon, I wanna go back to you because, uh, I mean, just as recently as this past summer, there was this issue with this family from Wisconsin who was denied a room after booking one online at the hotel. I mean, uh, how confident are you going forward that, I mean, it sounds like this listening session, this conversation on racism was a, was a well-attended event, but how confident are you going forward that, that some of these issues are going to be addressed systemically, like, like what Nick's talking about there in Rapid City and elsewhere? I think uh, when it comes down to uh, whether or not uh, we're going to ever get a solution to this problem, I mean, we've clearly heard Nick say that we have to do more protesting. We have to do more lawsuits. Like we could, we could clearly see where his where his direction is for resolve. The problem is, is that she's almost 80 years old, and when she dies, because she has cancer right now, when she dies, who, who, how are our kids going to ever be able to confront this issue with the person that said the words when she's gone? then that leaves her kids behind. And then when we leave, that leaves our kids behind. And so what we're doing is we're creating one thing that we scream about all the time. Historical trauma puts us where we're at today. And what, we're, what Nick is creating here is historical trauma for future generations because he doesn't want there to be any type of resolve. He wants it to be ongoing. And, and our Native American people are just as racist as a white person, and all of us living on the reservation know that. We hear we hear bad talk about white people. We hear bad talk about half-breeds, 
And just this last summer, me and Nick Tilson here went to court, and he was found guilty of calling me a hang around the Ford Indian and calling me okay. an Uncle All Tom. Right. So okay, Brandon, I'm, I'm going to go ahead, and we've got other issues we're going to talk about today. But you know what, folks? I really appreciate this conversation because we have two people, two Native people in South Dakota who have very differing opinions, very differing viewpoints on this issue. And this is what we're all about here at Native America Calling providing a balanced perspective. If you want to join this conversation, if you have something to add with regard to the Grand Gateway Hotel in Rapid City, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Get into this conversation. Make your voice known because we want to hear it here on our show, 1-800-99-NATIVE. And with that, let's go ahead and move north. We're going to go to Juneau, Alaska, where we have Maxine Rickert on the line. She is a member of the Native Ministries Committee for the Kunikhiti Northern Light United Church. And she is Athabaskan and Tlingit. And Maxine, thank you for joining us today. Good morning to you in Juneau, Alaska. And uh, give us a little bit of background on this injustice, this wrong that happened there with regard to the Presbyterian Church USA in the early 1960s in Juneau, Alaska. Oh, good morning. Um, I was grew up in Walter Sobolev's church. It was a Memorial Presbyterian church, also known as the Native Church, because um, Native people were not allowed to go to the Episcopal Church or the White Presbyterian Church. And uh, Walter Sobolev uh, was the first Clinkett um, ordained minister, and he uh, opened up the church in 1940, and it was a true community church, and he, he even opened up to white people. And I grew up, my family grew up a block away, and that um, he uh, preached his sermons in Clinkett and in English, and it went across the radio waves to all of southeast Alaska, to logging camps, to fishing boats up to Whitehorse, Canada. He was just a wonderful minister. And then in 1963, the Presbytery USA and the Northwest Coast Presbytery closed the church. They said, we can no longer afford to continue supporting this church. At the same time, they gave the white church a $250,000 loan to build a new church. And then they told our congregation, okay, you can join the white church. About half of our congregation went to that church, but they, a few years later, less than a fourth remained because they just didn't feel welcome. So this is in 63. Go back, go up to 2020 when we finally started to the church that I belong to, the white church, Northern Light United Church, they um, decided to investigate why the church, Native church, was closed. And that resulted in a process. We went through the overture process to get the Presbyterian USA and Pacific Coast um, Northwest to formally acknowledge the racist closure of the Walter Sobos Church to uh, make apology and reparation. And 
we fought, we tried to do it in a culturally appro- appropriate way, and we concluded all, all of our efforts uh, in October with the apology, and it was accepted by former Memorial Church members and by um, our tribal president for all of Southeast Alaska Natives. And the US Church, USA Church and the Pacific Northwest and the Northern Light Church made uh, over a million, almost a million dollars in reparations. And so the people um, in my church, the, all the members voted unanimously for this apology and reparations. And so it's been a positive experience. And we had a community celebration in October and we opened it up to the community. We got quite a few community members to come. And so that's, I think that we did it the right way because we, it wasn't like a fake apology. Mm-hmm. It was that people came, the Presbytery USA and Northwest, they came up to Juneau in August and we gave them an orientation. Okay, we Maxine, we're gonna have to take a short break here, but when we come back, we're gonna learn more about these reparations and this apology there in Juneau, Alaska by the Presbyterian Church USA. Sure would encourage anybody listening today with a comment or a thought about what's going on in Juneau, Alaska at Rapid City, South Dakota, give us a call. Are you a Native American health care provider, recovery counselor, social worker, domestic and sexual abuse advocate, or traditional healer working in Native American communities? Dr. Ruby Gibson will begin an advanced immersion in healing historical trauma. This online master class in somatic archaeology uses the lens of a seven-generational recovery approach providing powerful modalities and is offered tuition-free to tribal members. Registration deadline is March 1st. Info at freedomlodge.org who support this show. You're tuned to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We are focusing on making amends for hurtful or hateful actions against Native Americans. What would you like to see from bad actors to effectively promote healing and express apologies? Let us know, 1-800-996-2848. Our next guest is also in Juneau, Alaska, Myra Munson. She is the chair of the Healing Task Force at the Kunikiti Northern Light United Church. And Myra, thank you for joining our show today. And we just heard from Maxine, and she gave us a wonderful overview of this history there with the church that was closed and then now uh, reparations have been made and apologies have been made and accepted. And I'm just curious to get your thoughts, Myra. Why do you think um, this apology is going so smoothly there in Juneau, Alaska? Earlier we heard uh, with this issue in South Dakota and there's still a lot of tension, a, a lot of disagreement about how to move forward. But it sounds like collectively, most of the folks are on the same page with regard to this apology and these reparations being made by the church. Please share your insights. Thank you. Thank you for having us on the program. And I, you made a comment earlier about how important it was to have both voices about the situation happening in Rapid City. And I think that's right. Um, we, we did five years in our church of research to get to the point that we could sum, understand the history. 
it took that long to reconstruct what had happened. And in that process, we um, committed to listening to the voices of the people who were most affected. So we listened most to the Native voices within our church. We reached out to the family members of Dr. the Reverend Dr. Walter Soboleff, who'd been the pastor who basically had his church taken away, um, to try to understand. And then we engaged with other people in the community, including the Central Council of Clinton Haida Indians um, of Alaska and from the Sea Alaska Heritage and Institute and others in, in our process. The reparations are still ongoing. Uh, they, the commitments of the $980,000 were made and significant, more than roughly 200, more than $200,000 have already been paid, but there will be more reparations over the years because part of what we realize is that this, ro this arose from systemic racism. In, in this case, after a long history of really overt racism, no dogs, no Indians on the doors, of buildings in Juneau that every native person of Maxine's age and some quite a lot younger um, re remember seeing. But when that ob just obvious representation of racism went away, the assimilationist racism didn't go away and that underwrote the actions of the church as it just assumed, well, we want to say we want to integrate our churches, so we'll integrate at them, and we'll just have everybody from the native church go over to the white church, as if that was automatically the right thing, and plainly it was not, and that was reflected in other decisions. The um, we documented a context of what else was going on about that. So what we know is that racism is deeply bound into our communities. And it's deeply misunderstood. It doesn't have to be as overt as denying someone admission or putting a sign on the door. It can occur in lots of ways. And our commitment and what we said and what we're trying to do, and, and saying it's easier than doing it, but we're working on it and we are working now with partners, is to not let these events occur again. It was important. Our church is majority white um, with a strong Native uh, membership, but it's still majority white. And there was, un as Maxine said, there's unanimity about committing to a whole raft of actions. But among those was keeping this story alive so that we can overcome the problem that was described of, you know, well, okay, so you get this, and then it's gone. The people are gone. They don't remember. We want to be sure everyone remembers and uses it as a, um, a reminder that we all have to watch all the time for our own biases. We have to overcome them. Mm -hmm. We have to speak up for our neighbors when there's a problem. Myra, the money, the reparations, what mm -hmm. will that be used for? It's, being, it's going to be used a lot of it. Some uh, $100,000 was already transferred from the PCUSA to the to Alaska Heritage for the restoration of language to try to protect the language and to restore it. And additional funds have, are coming from our church in, re, in reparation to try to help promote uh, culture and language 
in youth, we've given funds and we'll give more to um, Central Council, which runs pro language programs. Protecting the language is a huge issue um, to, as a way of protecting the culture. It will also be used to help support some of the small Alaska Native churches and others in Southeast that are that struggle because as churches struggle all over um, to help them be able to take part. We um, invite Native ministers and others to preach in our church. Um, we're trying to make Clinkett and Native American customs a part of our service. We, we begin every service with a Clinkett song. Um, this is the day. We also will be helping to um, try to keep the story alive. We put, we put a um, memorial at the fire hall in Juneau, right downtown, that, rec that shows the history, brings people's attention to the history of the Memorial Church closing. That was the site where the Memorial Church was before it was closed and then ultimately torn down. Now it's a fire hall. We had a ceremony there. The fire chief spoke. Others, many others did to just remind the larger community. So it's a whole variety of things, um, supporting scholarship programs and others. There are a whole variety of things, and they're laid out in materials that are available on the uh, webpage for our church. Mostly it's, I guess when I, I keep coming back to the same thing, which is that this isn't a one-time event. There were elements of it that were one time there was this there had been apologies before but they were words and what we knew before we submitted the first piece of paper forward from our church forward that if we did an apology without action without you know and, and in in the united states at least action means spend some money uh, to be <laughs> crass about it okay. so reparations were important and so we committed funds at Northern at, at Kunikiti, we've changed the name of the church. Kunikiti's means healing house in Clinket, and we added that to the name of our church um, after long discussions with Native elders and others about the right way to do that. Um, right. It began in any way. The whole the Myra, point here is long term. Absolutely, and Myra, I want to thank you and Maxine both for joining us today and uh, sharing this story there from Juneau, Alaska, with regard to the Presbyterian Church USA. Uh, inspiring story here on Native America Calling. And with that, we've got one more guest on our show today, Cody Blackbird, who is joining us from Scottsdale, Arizona. He is an award-winning musician, he's an artist, and he's also a member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee. And Cody, welcome to the show. And uh, this is another kind of crazy, over-the-top issue here. Last year, we saw a gallery owner there in Scottsdale by the name of Gilbert Ortega Jr. in a video yelling profanities at you and some other folks who were, were, were marching and dancing. Give us an update on that situation. What has happened since that time? It was such a, a big, high-profile issue, a lot of media coverage on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for having me today. Um, you know, that day that this happened, we were actually, it was myself and eight other performers, I believe, nine other performers, dancers, and we were shooting a bit for uh, ESPN, uh, who was having their tailgate party on Main Street, where the Native Art Market is located. So 
many of us performers affiliated with the Native Art Market, which is Scottsdale's first and only Native-owned store there, um, often have performances there in the shop, and ESPN saw that and said, hey, can we shoot you guys out here in front of the Super Bowl sign? Um, we did that, and, you know, that's when Gilbert Ortega came out and uh, uh, did his, his whole tirade. And, um, yeah, like you said, it just went went crazy with the media and, and the attention that was brought to it, um, the injustice that, you know, he perpetuates against our people while owning uh you know, so-called Southwest Indian Trading Company is just, you know, hypocritical. Um, you know, it was mentioned just a moment ago um, that you can't have an apology without action. And, uh, you know, it was in the media that he apologized the next day. But I want to make it very clear that the situation in Scottsdale is not over. We are still being harassed by Gilbert's tenants um, Gilbert was charged for violating a protection order against myself where I was harassed by him again on the street um, just as I was coming off of my lunch break. Um, performers are continually harassed and told to shut up and um, told to turn our sound down, which is already at the level of other businesses around. Um, you know, he still has not been charged by the Scottsdale prosecutors. Uh, for the February incident, I just spoke with the prosecutors the other day, and they said, uh, well, we can't tell you if we are going to make a charging decision or not. Um, it's just so, so many things setting precedents in Scottsdale that this is okay, and it's continually going on, and it's still going on to this day. Um, it's just ridiculous. It's sad. Cody, um, so this gallery owner did issue an apology. It was a letter. Oh, I don't know what I was doing. I just, uh, you know, I just, was totally inappropriate. I grew up in the Gallup McKinley County area in New Mexico. I know a lot of native people. I respect the culture. I mean, what's, what would it take? I mean, earlier we heard from the folks in Alaska reparations. I mean, what do you think needs to happen there in Scottsdale with this specific incident? Uh, and this gallery, and it sounds like other gallery owners as well, to, to make amends with you and the other Native people in that community? You know, I, I think it's uh, beyond any one of us that were there that day. This is, this, we, uh, all of us that were affected that day take this as not a personal statement towards us, but also just the greater feeling um, that is had about our, our community by these people. Um, and so it, it's going to take a lot, you know, to, to show that there's any sort of change because it's, it's just perpetually gone on nonstop, the harassment, um, violation of the protection order to where it's showing that there is no true remorse. You know, if there was remorse, at least things would have simmered down. At least the harassment would have stopped, you know. But none of that's happened. And so the first step has not even been taken. So we can't even project of what we think it should look like because it's so hard to say that, um, you know, people like this want to do anything. Uh, but I definitely think that the, um, the prosecutor's office should charge for that um, incident and that he should be held within the judicial system you know, liable for, for what he did, for whatever they're willing to charge him with um, for that day. I don't think he should be able to just walk on that. 
Cody, there were also children that were present during that tirade. And of course, that's always concerning when young Native kids are exposed to issues like this. How are they doing? How are they holding up? And what, what do they make of it? I mean, did you talk to any of them? I mean, how are they processing what occurred? Well, one of the, the younger girls, um, she was recently um, selling lemonade outside the store. Um, she was dancing that day. And, and one of these tenants who is in the friends group of that circle of Gilbert's uh, told her, go back in the store, go back in the store. What are you doing out here? And she's just, you know, selling little cups of lemonade to people and um, being given like trouble by, and she goes, why can't I go outside mom? She asked her mom that, you know, why can't I, why, why don't these people like me? And so there's no understanding, you know, it's, it's really hard to tell kids of that age, like, and to break that down and to also warn them in a safe way that doesn't make them more fearful. Um, but to warn them to be careful because you never know. Cody, are there other business owners or gallery owners there that are supportive, that are listening to you in the other native voices? There are a select few, yes. You know, I, I would hate to throw everyone under that same cloud. There are a select few that are very supportive and, and um, uh, you know, not only galleries, but other, you know, businesses, restaurants, uh, things of that nature. Um, so there is support, you know, it's, it's not a, it, it, it's just a select few with a lot of money and deep political ties that happen to have this deep-seated you know, racism that was mentioned earlier also about, you know, it's, it's not just an attack or, or these blatant things. It's, it's in everything. It can be hidden in so many ways. Um, and sadly, that's, that's what we're seeing in Scottsdale. Cody, what makes this really intriguing is that, I mean, a ga Native American gallery owners, like I could see if these were like gas station owners or, you know, some kind of, but these are actually businesses that profit from celebrating and acknowledging Native American history and culture. So the fact that they would have this kind of backlash, doesn't that just kind of flummox you at all? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the owner of the, the Native art market, uh, Denise, uh, one of the owners, she had stated at one point, you know, um, this man has millions, literally millions. Why is he mad at an indigenous business and indigenous performers that are merely attempting to feed their families and support their families? We're going to have to wrap up our show now, but I want to thank all of our guests who've joined us today. Nick Tilson, Cody Blackbird, Myra Munson, Maxine Rickert, and Brandon Ferguson. Please join us here at Native America Calling again tomorrow. We'll be talking about a unique Inuit New Year tradition in Canada. Until then, keep the conversation moving on Facebook and Instagram. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. This program is supported by AmeriCorps VISTA. 
You can kickstart your career by joining thousands of AmeriCorps members in the VISTA program serving to alleviate poverty. AmeriCorps members help organizations make change right in their own community. A service opportunity that fits your ambition can be found at AmeriCorps.gov VISTA today. That's A-M-E-R-I-C-O-R-P-S dot G-O-V slash V-I-S-T-A. Uh, happy New Year! Now is a great time to start new habits that will keep you healthy. Eating right, getting plenty of exercise, and enough sleep are key to a healthy lifestyle. Talk to your healthcare provider about changes you can make to let the new year be one of your best years. For more information, contact your local Indian healthcare provider or visit healthcare.gov. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanek Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.